Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, April 30th, 2010. I'm Alana Rangi. What would the American Museum of Natural History be without its stuffed animals? I'm talking about the giant stuffed African elephants, the long-necked giraffes, or the tiny squirrels that are on display all throughout the building. All of these animals are examples of taxidermy, something that probably gives some of you the heebie-jeebies, but it intrigued writer Melissa Milgram. Milgram recently published a book called Still Life, Adventures in Taxidermy. In it, she explores the science, the art, and the history behind this unique profession. She spoke earlier this year at the American Museum of Natural History. I never thought I'd get to speak at my favorite museum in the world, and here I am. Uh, I just wrote a book, Still Life, Adventures in Taxidermy. Everybody has some experience with taxidermy, whether it's a deer head at a bar or a mantelpiece trophy fish, the jackalope, which is a fantasy creature you see out west, half antelope, half jackrabbit. Uh, this is my first, um, my own personal first encounter with taxidermy was Misty of Chincoteague. And Misty was the hero of Marguerite Henry's novel for kids. And my parents brought me to see her when I was 10. It must have stuck with me. And then, of course, there's Norman Bates. And taxidermy is always used to make um, creepy characters even creepier. Most of our associations were not in the museum or science world. And then, of course, we've all taken field trips to the Museum of Natural History and marveled at the dioramas. But before there were museums, we had cabinets of curiosities. And these were private collections of wonders and oddities. And they weren't organized systematically or according to any kind of science um, or taxonomy. And since nobody really knew what these animals, the exotic ones, looked like anyway anatomical accuracy didn't matter much. The point was just to marvel. This is just a brief overview to give you some context before we jump into the book. After Darwin, museums became obsessed with classification and taxonomy. So they lined up birds in rows, study skins, and compared them for shape and size. And they were, that was called comparative morphology. And there was no attempt to breathe any life into these specimens. They were just used for science. So the story of taxidermy, in a way, is to get that balance between science and art just right. This is the first specimen that, in the mammalogy department of this museum, uh, they call it specimen number one. And it's a ferocious lion mounted in Paris by Maison Vero. And you can see there's a little too much art, not enough science. And then these are some of the oldest specimens that the museum owns. These are orangutans um, mounted by... Uh, William Hornaday, the famous conservationist and Smithsonian taxidermist in the 1880s. And these, believe it or not, they may look a little too artistic, let's put it that way. But um, by adding foliage and habitat, this was a major breakthrough because it showed animals in their context and it showed the interdependency between specimens and their habitat. So basically, we go from study skins, point A, to point B, which is to freeze motion. And that's the goal of taxidermy. And here you can see we start out with an armature. Then they, they um, fill in the gaps with plaster. Then they sculpt the clay muscles. 
mold it, and then you have what's called a mannequin. And this could be made in fiberglass today or plaster in the 1920s. And basically, traditional taxidermy is still done this way. And the pinnacle of the art form, of course, are the majestic dioramas here at the museum. And this is a giraffe at a water hole in Africa. And the realism is just uncanny. Dioramas are three-dimensional portraits of vanishing wilderness areas. And the precision is so dreamlike that this image really looks like a photograph. The color is a little yellow on the screen, but on my computer it looks just like a photograph. And in 1994, I was on safari in Africa and looking at scenes much like this. And I'm from New Jersey, a very urban part of the world, so I had no, no experience with wildlife. It was really exotic. <laughs> and so when I ended up in a hunting camp, and I saw skin animal pelts. It was really horrific to me because I'm very far removed from any kind of death, like animal death. So I wondered what they were going to do with these skins. I figured they were going to turn them into trophies. And I thought, what could be more ridiculous than taking an animal and turning it into a replica of itself? But still, I had all these thoughts of life and death and beauty and animals swirling in my mind. And a relative told me that I lived about Schwendemann's taxidermy studio, which is a mile from where I grew up. And Schwendemann's is a really special place. And even though when I went there, I didn't know what to expect, um, being among all the, the birds and the butterflies and the snake skeletons and the mounted egrets and antelopes and everything, it felt just like falling into Darwin's study. What's more is um, this is a three-generation family shop with long ties to this museum. They've been preserving animals for the Museum of Natural History since the late 1940s. And David Schwendemann was the last staff taxidermist to work at the museum, and he worked here for 28 years. And Bruce, in the center, um, still continues to work for this museum and many other museums from the family studio. So I had walked into a, into a taxidermic gold mine, but in 1994, you couldn't convince anybody to publish an article on taxidermy because it was too creepy. Even though these people were gentle naturalists, and I was learning more about the natural world here than I had learned on safari in Africa. And it was that contradiction that really brought me into this world. So when I was at Schwendemann's, I learned what a museum taxidermist is. And a museum taxidermist is different than a commercial taxidermist because they have the time to use the, the highest level of scientific accuracy to bring their specimens to life. And Bruce has a wonderful definition of taxidermy, and that's the science and art of using the science of art of creating the illusion of life. And a museum taxidermist has to know how to mount everything from an elephant to a tiny um, perching bird. Their mounts have to last indefinitely, and they will be seen by millions of people, and they have to be accurate, scientifically accurate. And here's David as a young man working on um, a bird for the Japanese bird group. That was the first diorama he worked on. And there's the finished diorama. And by the time David arrived at the museum, he started as a summer job in 1959, and he ended up staying 28 years. One of the highlights was seeing how a diorama is made. And this is the Japanese bird group. And you could see it's like making a, a stage set, putting the topography on and creating the illusion of life. And he worked with all kinds of great artists. This is obviously not for the Japanese bird group, but 
He worked with people who were experts in plants and trees. This is Dorothea Lesser, who's painting the, the alligator teeth to make them really white. And David worked side by side with her in the workshop, in the museum workshop on the fifth floor. Here David's making a python, and it's still in the reptile hall. And at the end of the talk, they'll be giving out sheets where you can go and find all the dioramas and specimens that David preserved for this museum. David at the museum got to work with some of his heroes, including Raymond Potter, who was a famous bird taxidermist here. And here he's um, mounting birds of paradise. The diorama he's most proud of working on himself are the bald eagle groups, the bald eagles for the bald eagle group. And here he's using thread-like steel wires, which he's inserted into the pinion feathers so that he can create the illusion of the bird resisting the wind as it comes into land and in the river, and you'll see. I loved hanging out in Schwendemann's taxidermy studio because it was like my own private museum of natural history. And David has this thick book of, of all his tricks that he uses to create the illusion of life. Interesting enough, David's fa favorite diorama is this one, and it's the coyote group, the Yosemite, at Yosemite. And it's not the coyotes that drew, draw him to it, but the background painting and the river and the way it's so, the water is so clear and so real, you feel like you could step right into it. That was painted by, um, by someone whose fidelity to nature was more extreme than even David Schwendemann's, a guy named Perry Wilson, who once made the museum reverse a crescent moon because it didn't match with the, the migratory flight of the birds in that diorama. So we had some real fanatics here, but that's good. But no one was as fanatical as Carl Akeley. Carl Akeley is often compared to Indiana Jones, but Indiana Jones never <laughs> killed a leopard by shoving his fist down his throat or raised a vervet monkey on Central Park West or sewed the scalp back onto a tribesman in Africa. Um, Akeley did. Akeley's vision of nature was so intense that every grain of sand in his dioramas, every star in the sky had to match what he witnessed on one of his expeditions. He got his training, as most American uh, museum taxidermists did then, at Ward's Natural Science Establishment in Rochester. And Ward's was a famous um, museum supplier. So before museums sent people out on expeditions to collect their own specimens to bring back, many museums began by buying their collections from warts. So that's how the Chicago Field Museum got started. The Carnegie Museum bought a lot of specimens from warts. Harvard Museum of Natural History began that way, and many other. Princeton, lots of collections started from warts. It was like a college campus, and one, one hall would have, say, meteorites. Another would have skeletons. And this is the workshop. You can see it's just a, a taxidermy workshop in the 1800s. And that's where Carl Akeley began. This is what museums looked like before dioramas. They were single specimens encased in glass. And they didn't show much life or movement. And this didn't sit well with people like Akeley because they didn't match the reality or the beauty of the animal. Well, Akeley went on several expeditions to Africa to collect specimens for various museums. And when he went in 1909 for the American Museum, he was mauled by an elephant. And only an elephant mauling could stop somebody like Carl Akeley. So he had to rest. And while he was convalescing, 
he came up with a plan that would consume him for the rest of his life. He would recreate Africa twig by twig, star by star, elephant by elephant in New York City of all places. So this is his dream manifested. We've all been to the Akeley Hall of African Mammals. And this is what the workshop looked like in the heyday, in, in the 30s, when these dioramas were being built. First, he'd photograph the elephant for reference. Then he would take detailed measurements with the tape measure and calipers, compensating for variations that make a dead animal different from a living one, such as deflated lungs or a limp trunk. Next, he'd cast the skull and leg bones in plaster, make a death mask of the face to capture its fine musculature. And without this data, an animal would be a, ge- a trophy, a generalization, and Akeley's elephants would be the exact animal he saw. So you can imagine skinning an animal in Africa is incredibly difficult. He would skin them under a tarp to prevent them from decomposing, and then he would build up his armature. And this is a picture of, of the mold, and now that's putting together the elephant. And then he'd apply clay muscles and sculpt them. But the animal that consumed him most was the gorilla, and he called the gorilla his kin. And all taxidermists, I believe, anthropomorphize. The best taxidermists do, and it doesn't mean they dress up kittens like brides or anything, but it means that they deeply identify with animals, and they don't see themselves as apart from wildlife, but as part of it. So Akeley went on an expedition in 1925, to collect animals for, a, for the African Hall. And then in 1926, as part of that same expedition, he had to take the landscape painter to draw the panoramic backdrop for the gorilla group. And so Akeley already had his, his gorillas mounted in New York from a previous expedition. He had already taken f- footage of the Virunga Mountains in the Congo and he invented the first motion picture camera to do that. So he essentially had everything you would need to make a convincing diorama. But Akeley was not satisfied with that. He believed that, a, that the painter had to see the actual landscape in order to reproduce it faithfully. So he's past 60. He's ill with some kind of traveler's disease. He goes up to Mount McKenna, and he actually dies up there on the volcano, and they bury him in the lava rock, and they use the formalin to collect, to preserve the plants to embalm his body while they dig the grave. And it's a very poignant story, and it's almost like a Shakespearean tragedy because he just wouldn't give up, even though he was sick. He just kept having to push and push. He called himself a fool, and thank God for fools because now we have these beautiful dioramas. And although Akeley didn't live to see his hall made, David Schwendemann did attend the ribbon cutting as a boy of 12 you know, this is a fascinating story that you can go on and on about, but one thing that struck me was that when Akeley died, I mean, he had so much institutional support here at the museum, and that's partially why they took 25 years to build this hall. They were supposed to name the hall after Theodore Roosevelt, but when Akeley died, they named it after Akeley instead, and I just can't imagine that ever happening today. Akeley, of course, is the hero among commercial taxidermists, too, so I knew there was more than this museum world. So I went out into the commercial world, and they have a Carl Akeley Award at the World Taxidermy Championships, and that's to prove that taxidermy is indeed a form of wildlife art. And I thought we had already proven that by now, but apparently not. Well, you see, in the 60s and 70s, the Greenpeace era, um, 
museums had all the specimens, specimens they needed, basically, and they stopped collecting for the most part. And taxidermy workshops shut down. When David retired in 1987, he was never replaced by a staff taxidermist. Taxidermists competed before museums were willing to accept artistic taxidermy, and so they compete again now because they really don't have any other venues to show their artistry. And there are all kinds of categories that they compete in, lots of turkeys. You know, you can imagine what goes on in the hotel room. <laughs> and the judges really scrutinize these mounts, you know, anatomical accuracy. But now we're in a different era, and a lot of the anatomy that had to be made by hand is now available commercially, and it's prefabricated. But still I've found in my travels that the best taxidermists insist on making everything themselves because they have that same desire that Carl Akeley had to understand nature on their own terms. So even though you can buy a bobcat jaw set, and they sell fake saliva, but I mean... As Emily pointed out, what are you going to do, use real saliva? I mean, <laughs> you have to use something. For the first world show that I attended in 2003, a group of taxidermists from the Smithsonian Institute showed up with a recreation panda. And this is the, one of the categories at the world show is recreations because, you know, you can't go out and shoot a panda. That's not only illegal and on PC, it's just horrific. But he made his out of bears. And Ken's a hunter, so that's the second. Taxidermy's combines hunting, science, and art. So I had my science people, the Schwendemans, and they're like the old field naturalists and very much linked to that Victorian era of going out in the wild and observing nature. And so I needed my hunter, and this is Ken Walker. Ken's hero was or is um, Robert Rockwell, who accompanied Akeley on his expeditions, and he wrote a book called My Way of Becoming a Hunter, and here Rockwell's making a giraffe for Africa Hall, African Hall. And when Ken read that book, he knew right away what he wanted to be. So Ken lives in Alberta, in the middle of, in my opinion, nowhere. Um, he dropped out of school in 11th grade. He used, when he was a boy, he used to come to school with, like, muskrats in his pockets that he skinned before school. He's like a, a taxidermist, true and true. And now you can, you can imagine what his carcass freezer is like. It has a lot of... Well stocked. While I was writing about Ken and shadowing him, he was working at the Smithsonian. And I, the Smithsonian was doing something very unusual. They were building a mammal hall from scratch. And that rarely happens today. I mean, it's unfortunate that they had to demolish their dioramas to make room for this new mammal hall. In a post-expedition era, the Smithsonian was not going to send people out to Borneo to shoot orangutans. So... This one was pulled out of, out of um, storage. It was in a bath of ethanol and at the Museum Support uh, Center where they keep all their specimens. And they had to make this orangutan using reference. So they didn't have the benefit of going to Borneo to observe. They couldn't observe in the wild. So they had to approximate. And they had to approximate using bad, basically bad specimens. So they really had to work hard. They did a great job. Ken not only uh, recreates pandas, but he is interested in prehistoric recreations. And one of the most fascinating projects I watched during my time among taxidermists was Ken recreating this extinct Irish elk. And Irish elk haven't existed in 7,500 years. So how does somebody in the middle of Alberta with an 11th grade education, no access to scientific specimens, make one? 
He did have drawings of the skeleton at the Smithsonian, but that wasn't good enough for Ken. He had to redraw the skeleton to his own specifications. He looked at DNA research, which recently uh, reclassified the species in 2005. DNA can never tell you coat color or how an animal behaved in the wild, and fossilized specimens don't preserve the, the humps and the soft tissue. So he studied Paleolithic cave paintings in France to determine the shading. So it was a really fascinating project, and it showed the depth of his knowledge. Perhaps in a different era, Ken would have been part of the scientific community, like Akeley was, very respected in Hornaday. But Ken competes. That's where he gets recognition for his work. So here, um, his, his Irish elk is getting judged. And he won the category because everybody else dropped out. <laughs> He said nobody wanted to lose to a Canadian's fake animal. Okay, when I was at the World Show, the British bird judge, Jack Fishwick, told me about a sculptor in England who, the best taxidermist in the UK, but she called herself an anti-taxidermist, and that I had to go out there and see her rats. And I said, well, thanks, but I've been doing a lot of work. I don't know if I'm going to go out to England to see rats. But he said, these aren't just any rats. And you can see, you know, Emily's rats. Well, I'm going to introduce you. <laughs> and and the, the taxidermist is Emily Mayer. And her rats are extraordinary. Um, the feet are translucent. They look so real. You, can't, you have to poke them to see which one is real, to see if it's real. And here's um, Emily just wearing a, a, a rat hat that she made. I think she was wearing this for a party. Emily's a sculptor, um, but she began taxidermy when she was 12. So she's a taxidermist who then went to art school. So she's in, she crosses both lines. So I, Emily's my artist in my book. I now I have a naturalist, a hunter, and an artist. So combined, they tell the whole story. So Emily doesn't work for mannequins. She does a process called erosion molding, where it's a little, it's a little gross. She... Uh, <laughs> coats the animals in silicon and then rots the body and then what's left is only the hair embedded in rubber, essentially. And other taxidermists call it the perfect mount. It's not really a mount, but the level of detail is startling. When I visited Emily in England, I just was freaked out. Around every corner there was something that you didn't know if it was real or alive, and Emily offered no explanations. (laughs) But you can see the detail. I mean, Carl Akeley's Probably, well, I don't know. He's turning in his grave, right, if he saw this. Emily works for lots of clients. One of them is Damien Hurst. And I attended the Tate, a Tate opening with, with Emily. And here, a six-legged stillborn calf. It's not taxidermy. It's just preserved in formaldehyde. But Emily had to work really hard on this. She had to rehydrate it. It had been in someone's freezer for like 15 years. You know, taxidermy is often used in art these days, but it seems like it doesn't necessarily have to be good taxidermy. Any taxidermy seems to get a rise out of people, but Emily's work is so good. And while I was visiting her in England, she was working on this cow, and it was kind of a hush-hush project. And you can't imagine how incredibly difficult it is to erosion cast a cow. And every scrap of anatomy is just perfect. Like the hooves, which are cast, they're not the real hooves anymore. Every bit, the ears, the whiskers on the nose, every bit. And 
Emily and I went out to a dairy farm, and she wanted to study, get um, real reference by studying the cow's top knots and their facial features, and then she matched that. Well, <laughs> not quite the expression of the cow, but the detail. Oh, I'm sorry, but um, whoops. The next thing is a little graphic, so... I don't know if there are kids, you might want to cover their eyes, but the Finnish cow, Judith, and these, I mean, I'm sorry to show you this, but I, the level of detail is just insanely perfect. These are intestines. That's Judith's face. But part of what makes this work shocking when it's shown, say, in a museum setting, is the level of realism. American taxidermists come from a tradition of hunting. In the early days of the Republic with Thomas Jefferson and Audubon, hunting, art, and science were aligned. And so America comes from this hunting tradition. And in England, well, we were always the specimen providers, and the British formed great theories about the specimens. They had Darwin, who incidentally uh, took taxidermy lessons before he went on the Beagle. You would think being among all these um, serious taxidermists who still remember, who are still very much linked to natural history, you would get some serious information, but they liked to party over there. So we spent a lot of time at the pub. While I was there, there was kind of this gloomy feeling in the air because, you know, taxidermists have seen all their jobs disappear. They've seen museum workshops close up, fewer and fewer venues to work. And also, because people haven't respected taxidermy, a lot of collections were burned in bonfires in the 30s or just quietly given away out of embarrassment and collections broken up. And so when I was in England, um, I attended the auctioning off of Mr. Potter's Museum of Curiosities, which is a Victorian collection, one of the last intact Victorian collections there, there was. And it was held at the Jamaica Inn in Cornwall, which is about 40 miles north of Land's End, so it's pretty far out there. The Jamaica Inn was made famous by Daphne du Maurier, who wrote the book Jamaica Inn, and Alfred Hitchcock made a um, movie about it. Mr. Potter's Museum of Curiosities is very much like a cabinet of curiosities. And so it attracted dealers and enthusiasts from all over the world to this little spot in Cornwall. And the Victorians were crazy collectors. For them, taxidermy was a fad. And, and as naturalists brought exotic species home from other continents, armchair enthusiasts filled their parlors and drawing rooms with dome birds, butterfly cases, even their stuffed pets. And they transformed every hoof and claw into some exciting new, new object. They made zoological lamps. Those are kerosene lamps made out of monkeys or swans. They had his and her elephant heads. Some hairstyles even incorporated hummingbirds. It was such a craze that every town in England could support at least a part-time taxidermist. And when you went to Mr. Potter's museum... It wasn't organized scientifically. It was, more, it was organized like a curiosity cabinet. So it had crooked corridors with dome birds and birds overhead and distorted specimens like these two, two-headed pickled swine. Thankfully, they didn't have any preserved humans because the Victorians did that too. And this is Jeremy Bentham, and you can go see his body at um, University College in London if you care to. But that's Walter Potter, and he considered himself an artist, but he was known as a naturalist. And as all taxidermists were in the 1860s because science wasn't even taught in the schools yet. So everybody just shared this label, naturalist. Like a good Victorian, he loved freaks. They loved freaks of nature. 
They just like to be delighted by these wonders. So here's a four-legged duckling with two beaks, three eyes, and four wings. And I couldn't believe you could actually buy this. But you could, and you would. Since natural history wasn't taught in the schools yet, it really belonged to everyone. There weren't specialists and, you know, the rest of us. Everybody was a passionate amateur, even Charles Darwin. And so um, this drive to collect these weird things was sort of driven by this blind curiosity, and it tended to be romantic and idiosyncratic. But what um, Potter was most famous for were his anthropomorphic tableau, and these are Kitten's Wedding. And, you know, I'll tell you what links all of these taxidermists, even Potter, is this fanatical attention to detail. Like, Potter wouldn't just take any kitten. <laughs> I know that sounds gross, but he waited till the right specimens arrived, and he got them from farms and from farmers. He didn't kill anything for, for the museum. But when I saw these scenes, and they're huge, it reminded me of the Christmas windows at Lord and Taylor. <laughs> and here's Rabbit Schoolhouse. So all of these scenes mocked and mimicked um, Victorian life. So they were a form of social commentary. Um, and then this is his kitten's wedding. And you can see the attention to details insane. Now, had Potter attended the Great Exhibition of 1851, this may have been where he learned about these anthropomorphic scenes. The Great Exhibition was held in London's Crystal Palace, and it was to celebrate progress. And everybody, engineers, artists, um, and of course taxidermists, displayed their finest work for a, a public that was hungry for this stuff. And all kinds of innovations were there, like group mounts. Instead of one single specimen, um, a, sh a few animals were posed together, and that was groundbreaking back then. And what he may have seen, one of the most popular exhibits at the World's Fair was, um, was this taxidermic rendition of Goethe's Renneke the Fox. And as ridiculous as it may sound, foxes dressed as small people... Um, the painstaking care that Herman Plokett, the taxidermist who did this, um, used to manipulate his fox's facial expression um, just raised the taxidermic, the taxidermic bar, and everybody was smitten. And everybody loved this so much that it overpowered everything except for his frog shaving another frog, a, a display that Queen Victoria herself stopped to linger and laugh at. So you can see this tradition is still popular today if anyone's seen Fantastic Mr. Fox. And again, you know, in a world without... We have irony in our world, but in a world without irony, which was what, what the Victorian world was, this was a way to show endearment for animals. It was childlike, but it wasn't childish. This was his masterpiece, The Death and Burial of Cock Robin. It took him, I believe, seven years to make 98 British birds in a funeral procession. And the, rob the robins are pallbearers, you can see. And the bull is pulling the bull. It's based on a children's rhyme, a, fam a, a very popular children's rhyme in the Victorian era. And oh, when, when I came back from Potter's, I decided I had to mount my own squirrel because what a better way to learn. And at first, I was thinking I would do it just for the experience, and I did learn how difficult it was. But by preserving an animal myself, I really earned the respect and trust of taxidermists who I was covering because they tend to be burned a lot by the media and portrayed in their most bizarre and creepy sense. So by, by preserving the squirrel, it's sort of, it was a rite of passage. And I, I had the most amazing teachers, David and Bruce Schwendemann. And Bruce said, how did you talk me into this? 
<laughs> he said, why couldn't, you, why couldn't you mount a bear, something easy? Because there are lots of fine details. And, well, it took a lot of work. You could see all the detail work. And I did it from scratch using the Victorian methods. I didn't use a prefab mannequin. And I also chose an urban setting because that's my world. So it's racing across a wire. And I competed. And that was fun because... Uh, and I got a second-place medal in novices. And so, you know, today we see lots of taxidermy all around. It's in the windows of Bergdorf Goodman, of all places. It's in films used as props, fashion shoots, shelter magazines. I mean, what is Build-A-Bear Workshop but taxidermy for kids? <laughs> we have the Rainforest Cafe. I mean, this is a fancy jewelry store in Soho. I mean, we're as obsessed with nature as the Victorians were, and we have cable channels um, devoted to um, nature programming 24 hours a day. Everything is animals these days, and people are, look at, um, design stores sell cardboard deer heads. People are asking me now, what's going on? Why Why are we drawn to this again? And even though taxidermy is all over the place, people don't know much about it. They don't know if it's good or bad. They just like the novelty of it. And I think that as we see animals become extinct at a rate a thousand times faster than in the past, we're longing for animals, just like the Victorians who were curious about what they didn't have. We long for what we're seeing disappear. And I think we may need the illusion of nature more than they needed the exotica of it. And taxidermy is perhaps the most visceral souvenir there is. It's real, and it's very powerful, and it triggers emotions in us. And it conveys grandeur and sadness. And so maybe in the future, sadly, this may be the way that we preserve our memories of all these animals dying. So taxidermy may regain its purpose again. And I'm just going to close with a quote from Charles Baudelaire, the 19th century poet. I'd rather return to the dioramas, whose brutal and enormous magic has the power to impose on me a useful illusion. I would rather go to the theater and feast my eyes on the scenery in which I find my dearest dreams artificially expressed and tragically concentrated. These things, because they are false, are infinitely closer to the truth. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a nonprofit program of the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run here at Science in the City. Send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.